Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussein. And today, we are going to delve into the Deadly Taylor's Bunion. Yeah, uh, something that uh, we see way too often. I mean, we'll talk about all the treatment options, surgery, you know, what we see and what uh, you can do for your Taylor's Bunion. So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty common problem. Yeah, yeah, a lot more common than, uh, than uh, I'd like to admit because it's not one of my favorite surgeries. <laughs> well, it, it can be a little uh, uh, technically challenging if you're going to do an osteotomy because the bone is so small. Yeah. It's, it's a very narrow surgical neck at that point and so fixating that can be somewhat difficult but you know you see this for a couple of different reasons one of them is a, a really a ducto varus fifth toe yeah so the toe is angling towards the fourth toe and tucking under the fourth toe yeah and that positional problem is making the fifth metatarsal head uh, abnormally prominent yeah. that's one reason and then the other reason would be the fourth and fifth metatarsals are are splaying Splaying. out and you know that that's really a completely separate reason because i've i've fixed these where you just fix the toe issue and that ends up it it ends up bringing the toe back just like a regular bunion on the other side you fix the toe position and that prominence isn't nearly as big a deal so you can maybe just take a little bit of bone off the side remodel it but then yeah just getting the toe out from under the fourth toe makes that less prominent as the toe dislocates or subluxes it's just making that normal looking bone more prominent, yeah. right? But so, then there are those that have that real splaying and, and <laughs> man, they really, you're not going to get very far if you don't do the osteotomy. So, I mean, clinically, we see this bump, patients come in, they're like, look, I got this bump on my foot. It bothers me. Uh, it's a, it, It's been there forever. Is it a tumor? Is it a growth? Can you lop it off? You know, what can we do for this? Is there a cream or steroid or something that I can put on there or injection? And how often do you go into like, 
okay, this is a shoe gear issue until proven otherwise. Oh, yeah, you'll see. I yeah. mean, that's my first first uh, treatment option. Yeah. Uh, where are we? All right, so we do our exam, right? Uh, most of the time, you'll see that little prominence there, obviously. It, it'll rub on the side of their shoe. And just like Dr. D said, I mean, narrow shoes, uh, dress shoes, you know, flats, those uh, pointed loafers and whatnot, pointed and, shoes. And this is not a, a, a female or a male problem. This oh, is both men both. and women. Men's dress shoes can be just as problematic as yeah. women's dress shoes when it comes to any sort of mild deformity there. You get these calluses sometimes because of the pressure from the way it rotates out. Obviously, you're, you're pinching that bone between that skin, that rock and that hard place type of situation. And sometimes that callus is, is the main concern. I mean, mm, absolutely. They'll, they'll be like, look, this hurts. Can you shave this down? Is there a cream I can put on this? What can we do to kind of alleviate some of this pain? So, And you have to go into the understanding also with the patient about calluses. They don't just pop up out of nowhere. There's a specific mechanical reason why that callus is occurring in that place. Yeah. And you can offload it with orthotics, but you know, paring it down, it's just it's, gonna, it's come, gonna back. come back. So if they're okay with doing the routine maintenance, they can find a rhythm with urea-based creams and a pumice stone or a, a petty egg and, and they can manage it even with the plastizoid inserts, but yeah. they have to be willing to do the work. Yeah, if you don't, yeah. if you don't take the pressure off of it, it's not going to get better. Right. I have had patients come in, be like, "Look, uh, I went to a nail spa, the last doc or whatever. They shaved it down, and it just keeps on coming back. So whatever they're doing, it's not working. No. And then I'm like, "Well, <laughs> that's that's maintenance. You're going to get that callus. Right. It's it's a pressure spot." The, the goal is to alleviate that pressure spot. Now, that callus debridement, yes, it'll, it'll buy you time, maybe a couple of weeks, a couple of months, but there's a reason you're forming that callus. Right. You know, so adjusting the shoes, adjusting the insoles, ideally, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, that urea type cream or ammonium lactate, lachydrin, that will help keep that at bay and that'll buy you, hopefully, years before you ever have to do anything, hopefully never. But at some point, you know, most people are looking for a definitive answer. And, and I think that's where the surgery can be definitive. Yeah. So we do our exam. We see the callus. We look at x-rays. Obviously, we want to make sure they're not missing anything. And so a Taylor's bone, people, you know, assume it's a bump. It's a growth. It's a tumor. Can you, you know, knock it down? But then I talk to them. Look, it's an angulation or a deviation of that fifth metatarsal. It's literally just slightly rotating out and sometimes it can rotate out like you know splayed out like on an angle and sometimes it'll rotate out transversely and can you show the the condyle i mean when that thing rotates slightly oh, yeah. look at that, that bump that bump is is prominent i, I don't know if that if, if these uh images show it, it, it well but it's it's like two knuckles on the end of your bone right. that you're walking on these prominences which when they're flat it's perfect no right deal. but then when it rotates out now, you're walking on that now one's more prominent, yep. and it's a sm and it becomes you, you basically reduced the the surface area of that prominence by half. Yeah, and so now you've got twice as much pressure being applied to a smaller area, hence the yeah. pinpoint nucleated callus. Yeah. Uh, so as that bone angles out, it's also rotating out, and that's when you walk in that little prominence. Yep. And that's that little bump that you see on the side. Also, that is classic. So, you know, we talk about the x-rays. Uh, there's two measurements that, you know, we primarily look at is the IM angle, you know, and then how much of a variance there is in that bowing of that fifth metatarsal. And that, that kind of drives, if we go in surgically, how much we can really do as far as that shift goes. And so the IM is intermetatarsal angle. Oh, yes, so it's literally the angle between those fourth and fifth metatarsals. And we use the same 
technique when we're looking at traditional bunions between the first and the second metatarsals. Yeah. That I intermetatarsal angle or IM angle is an important uh, ang- angle to, uh, I think, quantify the severity of a bunion. Yeah, and that dictates the type of procedures that we can get away Absolutely. with. Absolutely. So conservatively, like Dr. D said, you can do shoe adjustments. I typically will say, you know, the little silicone pads, if you can fit them into your shoe to offload, that's a nice little touch. Um, but the biggest thing is a wide toe box. Hopefully you don't have to cut them all out like that. <laughs> that's classic. I have seen patients do that. I, I know. I, more for bunions, you know. Yeah. I've seen one or two do it for bunions, but not for like fifth. And, and those are, they're usually cutting out shoes that only come in a D width. So yeah. that's what people don't fully appreciate too, is that things like, I don't want to, throw these manufacturers under the bus, but most of the manufacturers... Fashion sneakers. They they don't make them in anything but a D-width. And folks like... I don't want to highlight the good guys. Brooks, Asics, Asics New Balance, New Balance uh, Saucony or Saucony. Ho- uh, uh, Hoka, Hoka is a, is a they, favorite they right now. multiple widths. And multiple widths in each size, which requires a different last. Yeah. The last is the model they make the shoe on. And it's clearly more expensive for those companies to yeah. produce sh- shoes in multiple widths for every size, but it is such a better way to fit shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you've got a, an E or a double E or a triple E foot and you're trying to squeeze it into a D, you're going to be miserable all day long. It doesn't matter what we do. Yeah. So, Another thing that y- you can look into is when you do buy your sneakers, make sure that that material on the top is elastic or soft. A lot of people will get like, look, I got sneakers, but then they'll have like that, uh, that band or strap that comes right across there. And then like the, the, or crisscrossing designs, designs and stuff yeah. right over the bum. Yes. It's yeah. soft on certain parts, but the part that's pushing against your bunion, <laughs> if it's stiff, it's not going to alleviate that pain. Yeah. So, uh, simple things. And then like we talked about before, uh, urea creams, paring down the callus, orthotics, especially if you're not looking to have surgery in the near future, a uh, simple way to help alleviate that pressure. And then finally, we dive into our surgical options. So you've exhausted all your options. And I kind of went through basic surgery, what it was like 50, 60 years ago, and to what it is now. So you'll kind of see the progression, Dr. D. Awesome. So initially, people used to do a, a transverse cut, it let it drift over into position, <laughs> and it was the, the let it float to where it wants to be. Keep your fingers crossed. Yeah. And uh, obviously, a high incidence of non-unions, you know, that doesn't... Uh, uh, work out too well because if you yeah. have too much motion, that bone's never going to solidify. So they started putting K wires, which worked out well. But obviously, with wires, you're not compressing, right? You're just you're aligning. Um, so there's there was a little bit of a risk, but it's, it was better than it was. Just and, and letting I, it flow. It's just simply the beauty of metatarsal fractures slash osteotomies is in yeah. general they'll they'll mostly heal, yeah. and they don't even have to be that well aligned. Yeah. So I think back in the day, you could get away with that. Yeah. But today, I think the expectations are much higher because we have, you know, better fixation. Yeah, yeah, so much better. So, next line of treatment was to go in and shift it over, transverse cut, let it slide over, and put that little screw, fixate it, and it worked out beautifully. I mean, this is still one of the most classic go-tos. You know, it's not, you know, the standard of care, but it is probably more common than not as far as uh, treatment options. You kind of slide it over, that prominence you knock down, and you put a little screw across there, and it works beautifully. It's, it's tried and true. And it gives you that compression. Obviously, a screw is going to pull those two bones into good apposition. All right. So this is your modified Austin, your, your chevron type of cut. You're literally scarfing long, that long joint. Arm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And this is the way I typically do it, if I can get away with it. It works out well. I make my long arm, I do a, a long arm as possibly, as, as far as you can go, as much as yeah. you possibly can. Because throwing two screws across this one, I think, clearly more yeah. beneficial. I think you're getting better fixation. One screw, and I've, I've seen it. That it just become, rotates yeah, on that that's, screw. <laughs> that's the center of rotation, and yeah. the thing will you know fall one way or the other. So Yeah. And the bone is really thin. It's really narrow. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. So you you really want to get as much bone to bone apposition as you can when you do that osteotomy, right. and it works out well. Now, honestly, uh, patients do well. I put little one point seven or two O screws in mm -hmm. there, and it and they're a little bit bigger than your glasses. They do beautiful. Slide that over. You knock off that bump, and then I typically, you know, I'd say. 70-80% of the time, I'll do a fifth-toe arthroplasty with mine also. Yeah, um, I think I would do it. I mean, I'm probably 95% of the yeah. time I'm doing it. And that kind of helps that toe from, you know, when you shift it over, the, the initial toe pain that they're feeling, you get that in a good position and it does well. So you can kind of see here, they slid it over, they did that little arthroplasty. When I say arthroplasty, you're literally taking that distal part of that fifth-digit head and you're just knocking it down. You're taking that out so they have nice... Uh, motion there again. There's no curved toe contracture, and it does does well. Um, all right, so we're working backwards now. So now you're coming back to those uh, chevron type of cuts, the wedge type of cuts. Your goal with those is you're shifting that that apex of deformity as far back so you can get as much correction with a smaller yes. osteotomy. So for like really severe, severe, eye, severe intermetatarsal angles, that you know this could be necessary. I don't think I've ever had to do one back there. No, no, yeah. it's not my go-to either. Yeah. The risk with these is that they're inherently unstable. Yeah, and you can't really weight bear these folks. Yeah, that's that's the I mean, downside. You'd have to put them in a cast, keep, keep them off of it for six weeks. This becomes more of a hassle. Yeah, I push my, my long arm chevron yeah, as, as hard as, as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th there are people that do these and they do work out well when they do work. Uh, like They do work very, very well. Don't knock it, you know, but not my forte. Uh, there are people that, you know, uh, do beautiful with these. Yeah, it would have to be a really severe IM angle for me to consider that. And even then, you can get away with a lot more distally and allow the patient to weight bear on it. Yeah. Uh, this is a distal chevron. I thought I'd, a chevron, a distal closing wedge. I thought I'd throw that in there. People don't do this anymore, but this was a uh, a type of procedure that was very popular for yeah. a good, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Tension band wiring. Yeah. You put that yeah. K wire in there, you do that tension band wire, you pull that K wire out, you know, four to six weeks out, and all that's left is this little tiny, tiny wire that, you know, patients don't feel. It, it was a it was a nice procedure. The risk of that is you're kind of hoping that that, that apex of that cut, that it doesn't um, break off because then you rotate on that wire and that yeah, leads to hinge. bigger problems. Yeah. yeah you that don't want to lose your intact hinge. The, yeah. the risk of doing a hinge at mid shaft is that there's not a lot of tissue holding it steady. So right. we do hinges, you know, all the time. We do hinges for bunions and stuff. And where you're aiming that hinge, you're also uh, pushing for that hinge to have like soft tissue. So I do my hinge at that base of that proximal phalanx, right? Where you have a lot of soft tissue and ligaments there. So even if that broke, you'd have that ligamentous structure holding it steady, keeping it nice and stable. Right. When you do a hinge mid-shaft like this... Not um, much there. Yeah, there's not a lot there. Yeah. So I thought I'd throw that in. I thought that was you know, interesting. I came across... Oh, minimally invasive. So this was very popular back, I don't know, say early 90s. It kind of fell out of favor, and now it's kind of falling back into favor. So I started with the baseline minimally invasive type of procedures. Yep. People used to do the, uh, uh, the, the K-wires and uh, uh, what are those called? The Shannon burrs and, you know, the... the yeah. So Just doing small incisions, doing osteotomies, 
And then again, keeping your fingers crossed. So I have done a couple of these, um, you know, the K wires and the screws. Uh, I don't know. I think it has its place. Not my comfort level. Uh, I think that you know, uh, you know, a small one centimeter incision versus a three four centimeter incision, uh, it's not that much of a difference. And if you use you know plastic types closure, the incision heals up beautifully. And anyways, but the goal of this was a small stab incision, like about one centimeter. You go in, you use a small reciprocating saw or a Shannon burr was the go-to, and it kind of goes through. You cut across, you wash out that area, you milk out all that bony debris, you kind of leave it a little bit in there because it kind of helps bridge. And then you put a wire, and the way you would do this is you'd run that wire from the inside out towards the tip of the toe. You'd run that wire in and out towards the tip of the toe, and then you'd slide that bone back over, and then you'd put that wire into the shaft of the fifth metatarsal. And the nice thing about this was, you know, you have a small stab incision and a wire and then no remaining hardware. So it was very popular. It did, you know, uh, pretty decent. But most of the studies showed that it was like 1 in 20 end up having like a non-union. The K-wires obviously aren't as stable. And um, that kind of... And you're using that K-wire just as a bolster. Yeah. It's really not fixation. Oh, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's like a bolster. Yeah, there's nothing going through the uh, distal fragment yeah. here. And this is, the, again, this is a tribute to the ability of metatarsal fractures to heal. Yeah pretty much in most cases because you've got this tiny little bridge and when you look at the final outcome you know that looks this looks great this looks decent but yeah. you know you're kind of hoping that this little portion here touching yeah how many of them ended up in non-unions yeah, i was looking through the studies it's about one in 20 it was yeah. like 95 percent. i mean that's not a good statistic as no, far no. as uh, uh something i'd like to risk and obviously that's what was documented you yeah know? so so that's what does that equate to be a, uh, yeah, five percent onion yeah. rate? That's higher than I'd like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's like I said, that's what's documented. So this is the newer uh, style of minimally invasive type of um, fixation. I've done this style. Uh, like I said, it's not my favorite. Small incision. The nice thing about this is they come with little jigs that help you direct and point that fixation for that screw. You get compression across that fixation site. There's a bunch of companies that are making uh, plates now that you can impact into the shaft of the metatarsal. They do well. I haven't seen too much studies on this stuff yet. Um, it's still fairly new. I'd say less than five, ten years. You know. So you're sliding that plate into the shaft, into the medullary canal. Exactly. Uh. Interesting. Yeah, I can't say I have any experience with that. Looks like it would be pretty stable. Yeah, it's inherently stable. You can get good compression across there. But still, like I said, I haven't seen the studies on this. And, and the incision, one centimeter versus three in, uh, centimeters. I mean... Um, you, how, yeah, how much are you gaining Yeah. in uh, fiddle factor? <laughs> Losing yeah. in fiddle factor. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not gonna. I'm certainly not gonna poo-poo it because I have not tried it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I can't say anything really bad about plate. it because uh, you know I know people that do this and they swear by it. Uh, just not my forte, honestly. Um, if you want to do minimally invasive, you can find people that do minimally invasive. I do certain procedures minimally invasive, but for my you know my Taylor's bunions, uh, not my go-to. But yeah, they they do work. Recovery. So recovery is pretty straightforward. We're looking at a walking boot, depending on the type of procedure. You know, if you're doing a proximal osteotomy type procedure, you're most likely going to be non-weight-bearing. But for the vast majority of these, you'll be weight-bearing. You can do surgical sure boot. I'm a boot guy. I think it just works beautifully. And rest, ice, elevate, and let that bone heal. Young adults, you're looking at six to eight weeks in a boot most of the time, and back to normal shoes soon after. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and it's all based on X-ray evidence yeah. that the bone's healing. So you know, I always like to say, this is all based on X-rays. I can give you a, an estimate. estimate. I can give you a ballpark number, but it, it's got to be based on on real data. And the data we're looking for is trabecular bone crossing the. Yes, yeah, you want that bridging coming across there, right? And once you kind of start seeing that, you know, you're golden. You know, it's it's like any other type of osteotomy. You want that to heal, and uh, I'm not trying to to risk anyone's foot. So, excellent, very good. Well, that was a, a really awesome overview of the dreaded Taylor's bunion. Yeah, you know these are common problems. They have reasonable success with conservative non-surgical yeah. options, but you have to be willing to adjust your shoes. That's the hard part. Uh, yeah, and, a lot and, of people want to wear their dress shoes. Like, I yeah. have to wear dress shoes to work. I'm like, you're gonna have to buy wider shoes. I tell patients go buy Dockers. You know, they're they're typically round. You know, and they're wider. Um, if you get like the fancy pointed shoes, you're you're. If with this foot structure, yeah, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, you feel for the folks that that have that forefoot deformity and have to wear dress shoes to work. That that can be difficult. But just know you've got a potential surgical option that has really, I think, excellent outcomes. Yeah. And we have a, a number of different ways we can fixate it. Uh, but the vast majority of them allow you to wait bear after the surgery, so that's great. Yeah. Uh, very infrequently would they require a cast or, or non-weight bearing, so yeah. pretty awesome. Excellent. All right, Dr. Hussain, thank you very much for the overview on Taylor's bunions. We'll have to get a maybe a surgical video on, on one of those up soon. Yeah, I'll pick out one of mine. We'll, we'll get it on here. Excellent. All right, we will see you guys next time on The Pod Doctors. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.